Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine as the debate over continuing to support Ukraine heats up, an arrest warrant is issued for Vladimir Putin, and China makes a state visit to Moscow. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, Gaslit Nation, The Bradcast, NBC News, the PBS NewsHour, and Morning Joe, with additional members-only clips from Democracy Now!, Gaslit Nation, and the Tom Hartman Program. This is President Biden speaking in Kyiv before he left. Together, we've committed nearly 700 tanks and thousands of armored vehicles. 1,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, more than 50 advanced launch rocket systems, anti-ship and air defense systems, all defend you to defend Ukraine. And that doesn't count the other half a billion dollars we're going to be we're announcing with you today and tomorrow. That's going to be coming your way. And that's just the United States in this piece. And just today, that announcement includes artillery ammunition for HIMARS and howitzers, more javelins, anti-armor systems, air surveillance radars to help protect Ukrainian people from aerial bombardments. Later this week, we will announce additional sanctions against elites and companies that are trying to evade sanctions and backfill Russia's war machine. That's President Biden speaking in a surprise trip to Kyiv this morning before heading on to Warsaw, Poland. Um, we're also joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Uh, Medea, your response to President Biden's trip and to the statement that he just made. Well, I feel this is a propaganda move to shore up support for a senseless war uh, that the American public are starting to realize uh, has no end in sight except for more oh, senseless waste of lives. We saw a new AP poll that showed that only 40% of the American people want to send more weapons to Ukraine. We see protests happening here in the United States, like the one that happened yesterday, bringing together a broad sector of people. Uh, and we see the protests happening all over Europe, a new coalition called Europe for Peace uh, that is pushing their governments towards negotiations. Uh, and we see just from the United States the opposite from Biden, saying we're sending more weapons. And of course, Zelensky, every time the U.S. agrees to send a new weapon like the tanks, then has another request like the fighter jets. And when it, what is it going to be after that? Troops. Uh, the American public, the public in Europe and the world community is saying we need to find an answer for this. That is why the top diplomat from China is on his way to Russia. They are about to announce a peace plan. The entire world is calling for a peace plan. We saw this with President Lula from Brazil, who met with Biden. Biden was pushing Brazil to send weapons to Ukraine. He said, we don't want to join this war. We want to end this war. Matt Duss, your response to Medea Benjamin's comment that this is a senseless war. I, I agree it's a senseless war. It's a senseless war that was launched by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, I would agree that we all want to end this war. I think um, the people who want to end this war most of all are the Ukrainians. 
I think the the question is, uh, under what conditions can we end this war in a way that's durable um, and that provides for continuing security and not is simply a pause before we get to another round of even worse fighting. I think this has been the, the approach of the Biden administration thus far, um, is to get to a point where you have real negotiations that can produce um, a ceasefire, uh, if not a peace agreement, um, an actual ceasefire that is enforceable um, and durable. And I, you know, I certainly grant that there are very legitimate concerns and questions on the part of lots of people, um, including within the administration, about how long this can go on um, and, and, and continuing to seek opportunities for precisely the negotiations that I previously mentioned. Matt, um, Ukraine's president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, said he's ruling out trading territory for peace as part of any negotiated settlement mm -hmm. with Putin. Um, he made the uh, comments in an interview with the BBC. Your response? Um, you know, I think from Zelensky's perspective, um, it makes sense for him to say that. Um, and, and I will also recognize that as a matter of international law, um, all of Ukraine, including Crimea, is this is part of Ukraine. Um, now, if we get to a point where, you know, we there's a, a ceasefire that is possible and durable in the absence of those kind of maximalist goals, I think that is something um, that we should look at seriously. I'm not proposing to negotiate on the behalf of uh, the Ukrainians. No one should do that. Um, but I do think we, we do have an interest in, in seeking, uh, you know, an end to this war. And I think the administration is is clear about that, even if they do, they very carefully do not want to get ahead, um, at least publicly, of, of declarations from the Ukrainian president. Um, Medea Benjamin, if you could respond to Matt, what Matt says, and you talked about the anti-war protest yesterday in Washington, D.C. You were initially on the plot uh, scheduled to speak, but then you didn't speak. I was looking at a series of tweets between you and Ralph Nader, and he said, why didn't you speak? Um, can you explain um, what's happening within the anti-war movement? But first, respond to Matt. I think the U.S. has a history of trying to stop negotiations, especially the ones that were taking place uh, in March, a month after the war began, and the West decided that they didn't want uh, Zelensky to make an agreement with Russia. Uh, I think that the sending, constant sending of weapons uh, is saying to Zelensky, you don't have to negotiate. Um, we are behind you 100 uh, percent. The U.S., what it should be doing is talking to the Russians. Biden, uh, instead of making a symbolic appearance in Kiev, uh, should make a meeting with Putin uh, and they should talk about how to end this war. Um, the uh, the issue of yesterday's uh, march uh, rally and then a march to the White House, uh, it was fascinating, Amy. I've never been at an anti-war rally like that. My organization, Code Pink, didn't want me to speak there because they didn't like a number of the speakers uh, and their positions on other issues. Uh, but uh, when have we ever had an anti-war march that brought together Ron Paul, Tulsi Gabbard, Jill Stein, Dennis Kucinich, uh, people from very different political perspectives. And there is another march coming up on uh, on March 18th, uh, which a different set of groups is putting together. I think we have to be at every anti-war march. And I'm also excited that on Tuesday, we're having a lobby day in Congress, invite, 
inviting people of all political persuasions to come meet us in the Rayburn building and go to the offices of every member of the Armed Services Committee in Congress to say enough weapons, stop sending weapons, start negotiating, stop escalating, start negotiating. This is the message I think now that more and more American people want us to take to Congress, which has done nothing but uh, supply billions and billions of weapons to keep this war going when there is no winning on the battlefield. And I think that's an important thing to say uh, to you, Matt Dust, because there is no winning on the battlefield. If you agree to that, then why do we keep fueling this war? Matt, your response. Sure. I mean, first, I would just um, quickly, you know, reference something Medea just said about the United States um, um, stopping negotiations. Um, you know, she referenced talks that were happening in March and in April. And I think it's I would encourage, um, you know, viewers to look closely into that, because I think that's a very, very incomplete and, and frankly, inaccurate, um, you know, rendition of what actually happened in that situation in those negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Um, you know, with regard to to ending the war, as I said, um, I want this war to end. Ukrainians certainly want this war to end. Um, I think acknowledging that there can be no victory on the battlefield, um, even if one does acknowledge that, there is still um, an argument for continuing to support the Ukrainians for creating the best possible situation on the battlefield that they can um, to come into negotiations um, from the strongest possible position. Um, that has been, I think, the Biden administration's approach. That has been the approach of our European allies. That does not preclude um, eventual negotiations when those negotiations become possible. I would note also that the Biden administration has been um, talking to the Russians at various levels, even if we're not seeing phone calls between President Biden and President Putin. There's been numerous reports of contacts at various levels between United States officials and their counterparts to identify um, when negotiations are appropriate and can achieve something. Um, but as yet, um, Vladimir Putin is the one who has given no indication that he is ready for that. And I think that's very important to recognize. President Biden became the first president since George W. Bush's visit in 2008 to go to Ukraine. This was a very big deal. Biden, as vice president, had visited the country many times, including addressing uh, the leaders in the parliament. And he's always had a soft spot for Ukraine. He's always been very strong on Ukraine. And there's wonderful video images of, of Zelensky and Biden walking arm in arm in, in center of Kiev next to the gold dome churches, paying tribute to the fallen soldiers. And all of this while air raid sirens were going off, right, with the air raid sirens that Ukrainians are so used to living with. The Kremlin was was given notice that the president of the United States was headed to Ukraine. The Kremlin was given advance notice. And of course, the Kremlin did not waste an opportunity. They made a big show by launching enough of a threat nearby, I believe over in Belarus, that the air raid siren system was triggered during Biden's visit. And that was all, of course, deliberate. And so Biden just stayed for a short while. And in his historic visit, which would mean so much to that country, Biden was given a plaque for himself on the street of the brave in Ukraine. Uh, he's going to go down in history as as like a hero of Ukraine. Why? Because as one young Ukrainian in Kiev recently told me, Ukrainians are so used to fighting alone 
They're so used to being left alone and abandoned by the rest of the world. That's part of the history of the Holodomor, as you see in my film, Mr. Jones. They're used to being sold out and he, and, and to, to all the great empires turning their backs on Ukraine and making money with Russia while R- Russia slaughters millions and so on. Any help at all is always a big surprise to Ukrainians who, who, are, who are used to self-reliance. They even have a big uh, reformist political party called self-reliance like self-reliance is like a a proud cultural movement among the ukrainian grassroots groups so all the aid that the u.s and other countries have been giving ukraine is tremendous is very meaningful and the ukrainians are very grateful at the same time the u.s under led by the, the the global allies the nato countries and the nato allies led by the u.s are also seen as by all staunch defenders of Ukraine and democracy worldwide, not just Ukrainians, but there is growing concern that the aid that Ukraine is getting to defend itself from existential threat and an actual genocide is a drip, drip, drip of aid. That it, it, there's just too much deliberation, too much consensus building, too much hand wringling over what the Kremlin will think and do and say that the rest of the world is letting Russia get away with slaughtering civilians, getting away with terrorizing civilians, lobbing missiles deliberately into apartment buildings and hospitals and schools and churches and hundreds of cultural sites destroyed across the country and so on. It's a genocide. It's a genocide that we're witnessing, a deliberate genocide. And they're not going to stop until the Russians are stopped. And so the whole argument is, for the love of God, stop this slow walking of aid, get Ukraine everything it needs now to defend itself. If you're not going to have boots on the ground, if you're not going to send NATO troops there, then if you're not going to do a no-fly zone, if you're not doing a no-fly zone, then give Ukraine everything it possibly needs to close its skies. Get the tanks there now. There was a promise of hundreds of tanks, but when you look at the fine print and the details, oh, nope, sorry, not as many tanks as we promised because of this and this, this reason. Oh, you're going to get them, but eventually maybe by end of the summer, maybe some in May. So it's all kind of a mess in terms of getting the urgently needed aid there and time to make any difference. And that really serves the Kremlin's interests. And what now needs to happen to kind of speed things up is get all the tanks there so Ukraine can defend itself and also get planes, get the jets there, like get Ukraine. Look at me, I'm like a military expert now. Um, the F-15s that Ukraine needs in order to close its own damn skies. So if you're not going to give Ukraine a no-fly zone, as the Kurds got and when, when Saddam Hussein was trying to commit genocide against the Kurds, there's an international movement that was organized to give the Kurds a no-fly zone to try to stop a genocide there. If you're not going to do that for the Ukrainians, then give them tanks, give them planes. Don't tell the Kremlin that you're going to slow walk aid as you're openly doing don't tell the kremlin that you're going to wring your hands over their bombastic nuclear threats that are self-destructive by the kremlin at the end of the day don't project to the kremlin that you're holding yourselves back like it's show a united front a united sign of strength saying everything's on the table we're getting ukraine everything it needs immediately we're getting them the jets we're getting them the tanks we're getting them everything they need to 100 percent close their skies so not a single missile can go through. Because if you do not end this now, it's going to drag on. And no, Medea Benjamin and the Code Pink movement and Seymour Hirsch and the others, there's no giving up land for peace. There's no human sacrifice for peace mm-hmm. like because it doesn't exist. We, you tried it with Hitler, with the Munich Pact. You know, Hitler annexed parts of Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain's like, ah, let him have it. <laughs> we'll do a big peace deal. 
Hitler will promise he's not going to go any further. And everyone was so relieved by the Munich Pact. And then what does Hitler do? He then invades Poland with his friend Stalin. And then we have World War II. So if you, if you want to stop this bubbling World War III energy that we're around right now, you got to learn from the mistakes that led to the last war, World War II, which is a- appeasement. You have to show strength. You have to show solidarity. You have to militarily defeat Russia and Ukraine. And you have to recognize the fact that Ukrainians are doing the fighting and the dying and being maimed for us, for the rest mm-hmm. of the world. They're the human sacrifice. And all they're asking for is that we don't leave any of them behind a new Iron Curtain. Because do you want to live in a concentration camp? Do you want to have your your media freedom, your press freedom, your freedom of thought, your freedom of language, your freedom of movement? Do you want to protect your children from being kidnapped and taken to Russia and put up for adoption as thousands, thousands of Ukrainian children have been kidnapped and put up for adoption in Russia? Do you want to have your children trafficked? Do you want to have your family raped? That is what is happening to the people left under Russian occupation. If you don't want that for your family, then don't force it on Ukrainians. There is no land for peace. That is a Chamberlain tragedy that did not work the first time and catapulted us down the path of a world war. We're not doing that again. We're going to defeat Russia and Ukraine. That is the only option Russia has given us. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. I would call it untimely false because the moment my article was published, President Zelensky of Ukraine declared in, uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, his desire for a complete victory. So uh, my, uh, uh, I should say in advance that uh, my proposal was 
not to impose any negotiations in any way because it's manifestly unfeasible. Um, I'm very skeptical, even more today than back in December, that any sides are ready for negotiations. My idea was to map out how would it look after Russia uh, uh, has to accept its defeat and how to make it a more palatable uh, solution uh, for some parts of the Russian elites that want to switch from this uh, attitude of aggression, aggression and imperialism to a different, more pragmatic uh, approach to the West. So I, I went through several uh, obvious aspects of uh, possible maps. First of all, uh, continue to help Ukraine, of course, to achieve military gains, but also indicate on a political level to Russian elites and Russian populace that this war is unwinnable for them. And uh, they the longer the war uh, continues, uh, there will be a greater uh, danger of another collapse, just as uh, what happened to the Soviet Union 30 years ago. The second uh, part of this map is to offer some possible carrots up to negotiations, up to trade-offs, uh, to return Russia after it accepts its defeat and withdraws its forces from Ukraine into the uh, you know uh, international economic, financial, and political space. In political sense, I I wrote that we need to offer uh, the return of legit legitimacy to certain individuals and certain groups of Russian elites as a trade-off for them accepting a defeat. In economic uh, field, there should be some talk about the conditions for removing sanctions, because we know from the Cold War, that, and actually from the history of World War One, after Germany accepted an armistice, it was still subject to very humiliating and, and, and painful blockade uh, by, by the Allies. So what uh, you know, there should be some discussion. What will Russians gain economically if they accept uh, status quo ante and uh, agree to talk with Ukraine on the damage control? And financially, there's an issue, of course, of uh, frozen assets in compensation to Ukraine. All we hear from uh, um, from some uh, supporters of Ukraine and Ukrainians themselves is about sticks and punishment. We don't hear anything about carrots, which is understandable. We are in the midst of brutal atro uh, war with when Russians committed so many atrocities. But without certain carrots, at least addressed for the post-war period, we risk uh, repeating the dangerous uh, path uh, after World War I. Uh, Professor Zubok, that foreign affairs piece, I mean, speaking of, uh, you just mentioned that the war uh, may be unwinnable for Russia, but you begin the foreign affairs piece uh, by citing comments by uh, General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He said that the probability of a complete Ukrainian military victory was not high. Nevertheless, he said President Biden wanted Ukraine to decide whether to negotiate with Russia. Let's go to his comments. He made these comments in November. The military task of militarily kicking the Russians physically out of Ukraine is a very difficult task. And it's not going to happen in the next couple of weeks unless the Russian army completely collapses, which is unlikely. So in terms of probability, uh, the probability of a Ukrainian military victory defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include what they define or what they claim is Crimea, to the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high.
The Russian military is really hurting bad. So you want to negotiate at a time when you're at your strength and your opponent is at weakness. And it's possible, maybe, that there'll be a political solution. So, Professor Zubak, those were comments that General Mark Milley made uh, in November. Your response to what he said, uh, and especially this, this comment that he made about uh, negotiating from a position of strength, uh, how do you assess the situation now? Uh, and what prospects do you see for any talks between Ukraine and Russia? Well, we have three months when um, neither side made uh, any breakthrough after the spectacular liberation of uh, parts of Ukrainian territory by the Ukrainian army. So more and more people, including Farid Zakaria on CNN, began to talk about a stalemate, which is what uh, was the starting point of my piece in December. But uh, yeah, I'm not a military expert and uh, war is a highly volatile thing. So I think Ukrainians disagree with Mili and they, they're more confident than Mili in their own capacities to inflict uh, uh, humiliating military defeats and even uh, forcing Russia out of Crimea. They have uh, they, you know, secret plan. They have various uh, stratagems for that, um, which I'm not aware of. But we may ha have surprises. But what I want to stress, Milly is, is a good authority because he went through uh, several wars where you achieve military goals, but you don't achieve political goals. The war in Iraq showed that. The war in Afghanistan showed that. Um, it, it, so in a sense, we, it, to add to his argument about the, uh, that the military, uh, uh, definite military defeat, complete military defeat of Russia is unlikely, I would add a political factor. As long as um, uh, Putin and his entourage continues to view this war as a war about heritage and the war of defeat or uh, defeat of Ukraine or defeat of Russia, which equals in his mind to the, um, you know, demise of Russia. So until then, we have an intractable political dilemma. There is no political counterplay to this, no political alternative that the West offers to Putin. There were a few words by Biden recently, he said, and also this is not a war against Russian people and all that. But, you know, it needs to be more loud and more pronounced and more specific, I would say, so that parts of Russian elites and parts of populist, populist would see, wait a minute, it's not about a dilemma whether we uh, win or perish. It's a, it's a senseless war. And we better end it soon. So, you know, the, the West must come up with something more politically specific to address Russian perennial insecu insecurity and Russian concerns, which is not easy. You know, the, the third part of my article is about selling peace. There's so many people who would uh, accuse me of appeasing Putin, which was not my intention, who uh, blamed me for offering a ramp off uh, for Russia, which was not my intention. My intention was to avoid the aftermath of the war, which would be dangerous both for Russia with nuclear weapons in Russia and for its neighbors and for the architecture of European peace in general. Let's start with exactly, just in general terms, uh, what New Start did or does and how Putin's declaration now changes that or doesn't change that, as you see it, in, in real, world, real world terms? Well, fundamentally, New Start provides stability and predictability 
for both the United States and Russia. So it builds on, as you mentioned, previous arms control agreements, um, all of which, with the exception of the INF Treaty, have dealt with uh, strategic or long-range nuclear weapons. We've never had a treaty that has focused on short-range or tactical nuclear weapons because uh, neither side, but especially Russia, has been interested in uh, having the other poke into uh, the vagaries of its, of its mm. nuclear arsenal. Um, so those have always been unregulated. But strategic, we've got a long track record going back about 50 years or so. And what the treaty did fundamentally was set an upper limit of 1,550 uh, warheads, mm-hmm. uh, deployed warheads for each side. It's strange, actually, that the announcement yesterday, there is no provision in the treaty, unlike for extending it by five years, there's no provision for suspending the treaty. You're either in it or you're not. And like any other international treaty, any, tra- any treaty party can say, you know what, this isn't international interest anymore, we are going to leave. Mm-hmm. And the terms of the treaty say that you can do that, you have to give six months notice, and at the end of six months you're formally out of the treaty. So the suspension is, you know, I guess a wily way of uh, uh, Putin trying to get what he wants, which is, I think, frankly, just an extension of what he's been doing over the last year. This is a nuclear threat uh, by another name. It's mm-hmm. an effort to frighten uh, the publics in the United States and NATO and in Ukraine into letting him basically blackmail those countries into doing whatever he wants uh, with Ukraine. So he's got this this bludgeon. It's really the only tool that he has right now, and he's he's waving it around and threatening to use it. And now he's threatening to uh, well, not threatening. He said he's not going to comply with certain parts of the treaty unless and until his you know demands are satisfied. But uh, there is no legal basis for for what he's doing. It's really troubling because, you know, one of the reasons that we constantly hear from from folks in this country, and frankly, it's both folks on the far right and on the supposed far left uh, for objecting to the U.S. support of Ukraine is because, oh, Russia has has a nuclear arsenal. And uh, yes, Putin has, in fact, done a quite a bit of nuclear saber rattling uh, during this invasion. But the, the notion that, well, he's got nuclear weapons, if, if we continue to oppose him, it could turn into a nuclear war. That seems to me like a signal to, you know, Kim Jong-un, hey, in North Korea, you can go ahead and invade South Korea if you want. Nobody's going to fight you because you've got nuclear weapons. It seems to me on its face to be absurd. That said, Stephen, how, how unusual, how dangerous do you view uh, Putin's various threats to use nuclear weapons to be? How seriously should we take it? How seriously do you take those concerns? Well, I'll answer that, but I want to go back to the context of when you asked that question. Even during the Cold War, Mm -hmm. when we and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union back then, had many thousands more nuclear weapons than we do now, we we were very careful, obviously. I mean, certainly there were problems like the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the closest we ever came to nuclear war Mm -hmm. and other incidents. But, you know, we did not sit back and say, okay, you've got nuclear weapons, we are not going to get involved with you in any way, shape, or form. And neither did the Soviet Union. We, we, we traipsed around each other. We fought proxy wars. But we didn't say, okay, we can't do anything because you might annihilate us. Mm-hmm. That was never the deal. Um, so I don't think that would, you know, it doesn't make sense then that we would, you know, do that today. Mm-hmm. How seriously should we take Putin? Well, I think we should be concerned that he is saying these things. 
I don't think it's likely that he's, he's going to follow through. Why? Because if he does, he knows that he risks not only the destruction of his regime, but the end of his life and uh, everything that he has, has worked for. I mean, he's not, uh, I wouldn't say that he is uh, irrational. He's clearly made some serious mistakes with regard to the prosecution of this war, and we can debate why that happened. But I think he's acting in a way that he thinks and that's the important qualifier here, that he thinks is rational mm. and that he's doing what he thinks is important for his own uh, uh, power, his own legacy, and to the extent that he believes that, the, the future legacy of, of, of Russia. So I don't think he's going to do anything that would cause all of that to come crashing down around him. That being said, he certainly has the capacity to use one or more nuclear weapons and to ratchet up you know, the threat making he's done, and so do we. So we don't want to do anything that would directly uh, increase the level of tension that we, we already have. And I think the Biden administration and NATO have been very careful. They have not said, okay, you know, we're not going to do anything because we're petrified of you. They said, okay, we're, we're going to do some things because we think it's important in, uh -huh. uh, you know, for the future of democracy. Uh, but we're, we're, we've got certain lines that we're not going to cross. So we're not going to send U.S. troops into Ukraine, for example. Mm -hmm. We're not going to send certain weapon systems. We're also not going to put our nuclear forces on alert, and we're not going to make our own nuclear threats. So if you look at every time Putin has done one of these things, the United States doesn't dismiss it and doesn't panic. They sort of walk down the middle, and I think that's exactly uh, the right approach mm -hmm. here. We need to show that nuclear weapons are fundamentally useless, uh, not just for prosecuting war, but also for blackmail. Yes. And yes. we need to isolate Putin in that regard, and we need to end this war as quickly and, as possible. It's not going to be easy uh, at all, uh, but we've got to do that because the, otherwise the future world that we're going to live in where uh, that brought to you by nuclear coercion is going to be far worse than anything we dealt with during the Cold War. Brought, brought to you by nuclear coercion. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. What is, at least for this moment, a mostly symbolic act, an arrest warrant was issued today for Russian President Vladimir Putin, now formally charged by the International Criminal Court for War Crimes in Ukraine. The court alleges Putin bears individual responsibility for the unlawful transfer of children from occupied areas of Ukraine to Russia. While there is little expectation of Putin ending up in custody anytime soon, the charges were nonetheless welcomed by Ukraine's President Zelensky, who thanked the court for its willingness to really bring those who are guilty to justice. Tonight, Putin's spokesman dismissed the warrant, saying we do not recognize this court. Aaron McLaughlin reports from Kiev. Tonight, Russian President Vladimir Putin now wanted for alleged war crimes. The International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant, alleging Putin oversaw the forced deportation of children from Ukraine to Russia, forbidden under international law, adding there are reasonable grounds to believe that Putin bears individual criminal responsibility. 
Tonight, Ukraine's President Zelensky hailing the move against what he calls state evil, which he says starts with Putin. The ICC also issuing an arrest warrant for Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner, Maria Lvova Belova. Seen here as unaccompanied Ukrainian children are loaded onto a bus for Russia, according to the Associated Press. Ukraine's prosecutor general says more than 16,000 Ukrainian children were forcibly deported from occupied areas, noting the real figure could be much higher. Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow today for a three-day state visit to Russia. Relations between the two countries have grown closer over the past year as China's imports of Russian oil have increased, and both countries seek to undercut the U.S. on the world stage. Nick Schifrin has the story. They call each other dear old friends, and in their 40th meeting, Chinese President Xi Jinping labeled Russian President Vladimir Putin his partner in war and peace. China attaches great importance to China-Russia relations because we are each other's biggest neighboring countries as well as strategic partners. The two men share authoritarian recipes for power and a mutual desire to upend U.S. influence. China remains one of the biggest buyers of Russian energy. Chinese companies are providing Russia with parts essential to maintain Russian weapons. The two countries conduct joint military exercises. And since the war in Ukraine began, China has neither endorsed nor condemned it. Beijing's new peace plan calls for upholding Ukraine's sovereignty, but not for Russian troops to withdraw, an approach Putin endorsed today. We know that you proceed from the principles of justice and observance of the fundamental provisions of international law, of indivisible security for all countries. This weekend, Putin also visited Russian-occupied Crimea, including what Russian media described as a children's center, one day after Putin became an indicted war criminal for allegedly overseeing the forced deportation of Ukrainian children. In part because of those war crimes, Putin and Russia are increasingly isolated. But today's visit came with an endorsement from the leader of the world's second-largest economy and military. Thanks to your strong leadership, Russia has achieved significant success in reaching prosperity and well-being of the country. I am sure that the people of Russia will support you in your best efforts. Beijing casts Xi as a peacemaker, and he's expected to speak with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky following his trip to Moscow. So what is driving the increased level of cooperation between Russia and China? For that, we turn to Sasha Gbuyev, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who joins us from Geneva. Sasha Gbuyev, welcome to NewsHour. Thanks very much. Firstly, how important is it for Putin to get this visit from Xi? It is very important because China, over the course of the last 12 plus months has turned into a major supporter of Russia. It's the major market for Russian hydrocarbons and the major source of cash for Putin's war chest. It's the major source of imports, including dual use imports and civilian chips that enable Putin's war economy going. When China stands next to you or behind you, you can say that you are not isolated. So I want to drill down into what China is sending to Russia. But first, let's get the other side. Uh, how does Xi Jinping see the importance of the relationship between Beijing and Moscow right now? 
I think for Xi Jinping, relationship with Russia was always important. Russia is an important source of raw materials, and Russia is the only like-minded authoritarian state on the UN Security Council among permanent members. But what also colors his perspective now is this view that the U.S.-China relationship is going off the cliff. It's continued confrontation that gets worse. And here, Russia, as a junior partner, is a very valuable asset. And that is the case, especially as President Biden sees the world, or at least paints the world, uh, in terms of democracy versus authoritarianism, right? That's absolutely right. That's the depiction that helps to bring Russia and China closer together, particularly since both are quite obsessed about what they see the U.S. democracy promotion effort. Both Xi Jinping and Putin see themselves vulnerable at home, and they definitely want to join hands to push back against U.S. hegemony. Senior U.S. officials are particularly worried about right now if China were to decide to send weapons openly to Russia. But how do you see China already supporting Russia's war in Ukraine? I think that providing cash by opening its market for Russian hydrocarbons is very important because soldiers need to be paid and all of the military procurements also need to be covered. But also China provides the civilian ships and also some of the components of Russian arms like radars and surface-to-air missiles and many other uh, arms and Russian weapons that are used on the battlefield in Ukraine. As I mentioned before, Beijing portrays Xi Jinping as a peacemaker in this visit as part of a diplomatic effort to try and end the war in Ukraine. How much of this visit is really about that effort? Right now, the mood in Kiev and in Moscow is give war a chance. China perfectly gets it. And for Beijing, its diplomatic effort is just more a tool to push back against Western criticism that is leaning too much in support of Vladimir Putin's war. And at the same time, it provides justification for Xi Jinping to go to Moscow to engage Putin on a state visit. But that needs to be coupled with outreach to President Zelensky, which will also happen, but in a separate phone call rather than a full-fledged visit. And finally, we expect a joint statement out of this trip from both leaders. What should we be looking out for? The language might be a little bit guarded, but it cannot uh, mask that the relationship is getting deeper. It's increasingly asymmetric. The terms are dictated by China. And then the primary target that they have in mind as their opponent are the United States of America. There will be some documents that are the underwater part of the iceberg. For example, decisions to sell secretive Russian military technology like surface-to-air systems, S-500, or the most advanced Russian fighter jets to China that both Moscow and Beijing feel is not the right time to publicize them given the war and the negative optics, but it's okay to start implementing them and go public about that months from now and maybe even years from now.
And after months of delays, both Turkey and Hungary say they are committed to approving Finland's bid for NATO membership. On Friday, both countries announced their support, removing the biggest barrier for Finland to join the alliance. Meanwhile, despite policy changes, Turkey and Hungary say a decision on Sweden's bid for membership will have to wait. Finland and Sweden sent applications to join NATO nearly a year ago, ending their policies of neutrality and military non-alignment in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Joining us now, President and founder of the Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media, Ian Bremer. Ian, let's start, though, with the news uh, about Finland uh, becoming a member of NATO. How important is that uh, for NATO? Uh, and, and how much of a thorn in Vladimir Putin's side will that be? It's significant. Uh, I think it's an 800 uh, kilometer uh, border between uh, Finland and Russia itself. It's very well defended. The Finns spend uh, well over 2% of GDP um, on their defense, unlike some other NATO countries. Of course, this is the exact opposite of what Putin was trying to accomplish when he invaded Ukraine. It was pushing back NATO. It wasn't getting more countries Mm -hmm. in. So, I mean, very clearly the fact that the Turks and the Hungarians, the two outliers um, in NATO that have been dragging their feet, are now fully on board. And Finland is more important from a security perspective than the Swedes are. Nothing personal, Swedes. Uh, the, that, that is uh, not a happy piece of backdrop news for Putin today. Keeping in mind what uh, one of my law professors uh, told me in a jurisprudence class, you have to be able to separate out what is from what ought to be. And I understand when people are talking about a possible deal at the end of this Ukrainian war uh, in the West, certainly they want to talk about what ought to be. But from all the people you talk to day in, day out in your position, uh, what does a settlement uh, look like if we have, let's say, another six months to a year to 18 months of stalemate? Um, uh, well, first, I don't think we see a settlement. I think the question is whether or not both forces are exhausted and therefore not able to take more territory either back if you're the Ukrainians or from Ukraine if you're the Russians. That's not a settlement. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you could end up with something that feels like a frozen conflict where the Russians have a little less territory than they're occupying today after the Ukrainian counteroffensive over the coming weeks, which is expected, in which I suspect will allow them to take some more territory because the uh, artillery and ammunition issue that they've been complaining about for a long time looks to have been quietly resolved. So they should be able to hit back um, against Russia in relatively short order. But but there's no negotiation that's going to lead to a peace. And, and what that means is irrespective of how much of Ukrainian territory the Ukrainians can get back, Russia is not going to be treated like a normal country again. Uh, again, the fact that we're talking about war crimes, that uh, Putin would be arrested if he were to travel to any of the 123 countries that are members of the International Criminal Court, that means that he and his regime are perceived as dead-enders. They have nowhere to go but backed into a corner. And, of course, in that environment, the willingness to continue to fight is very high. Uh, the willingness to continue to repress their own people under any circumstances is incredibly high. That's the concern, uh, is that Ukraine, uh, whether or not the Ukraine gets back most or all of their territory, Russia will lose on the global stage in the same way that they've just lost 
unfinished NATO membership. They are going to lose in terms of their diplomatic relations, their security relations and their economic relations with every advanced industrial democracy in the world. And of course, that's exactly the opposite of what Putin wanted. The same Putin who said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest humiliation for the 20th century. So, Ian, you had an insight on Vladimir Putin, who's been obviously very hard to read over the last year and, and, and several months. Uh, I'm curious, you had said earlier that he was seeming more confident than he has been in a long time. Uh, what, what do you put that down to? Do, do, does he think he can, can outlast the West, grind down the Ukrainians? Uh, I think there are two big points here. One is the fact that Xi Jinping is making a three-day state visit to come and see him. Just a few months ago, September, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Xi Jinping was pressuring Putin, and Putin was forced to admit that the Chinese have concerns. This feels like a much better alignment between the United, between China and Russia, and in part that comes after these uh, unprecedented hardline statements that Xi Jinping has made directly against the United States just a couple of weeks ago. So that's part of it. Secondly, of course, uh, Putin is also getting the news from the United States. The fact that increasingly Trump and others on the Republican side that are running for the presidency um, are wavering in their level of support for Ukraine, are saying this 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 uh, potentially can, is a, a World War Three threat. Uh, the fact that he thinks that the Americans are becoming much more divided matters a lot to Russia's ability to outlast NATO in this war. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! hosting a debate over our continued support of the war in Ukraine, which both sides recognize as senseless. Gaslit Nation came down much more forcefully in support of maintaining aid to Ukraine, while comparing the situation to the lead-up to World War II. Democracy Now! looked more deeply at some negotiation strategies to bring the war to an end. The broadcast discussed the nuclear threat from Russia in the wake of Putin suspending the New START Treaty. NBC News reported on the arrest warrant for Putin issued by the International Criminal Court. The PBS NewsHour reported on the Chinese president's state visit to Moscow. And Morning Joe discussed the growing NATO alliance and the waning support for Ukraine among Republicans. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Democracy Now! diving more into the details of peace negotiations. My proposal was to somehow try to get to, to real political negotiations uh, of a ceasefire in the current conflict via first really small steps. This would bring about these exact same advantages, namely um, humanitarian advantages and every life saved is a big step in the right direction. Gaslit Nation explained Putin as a product of his context. This cult of personality around Stalin and this cult of personality of the great victory of, of the great patriotic war, this all points to the fact that Putin is a product of Russia. And the Tom Hartman program spoke with a veteran journalist who described what could be the next major phase of the war. 2023, I will warn your audience, is going to be a graphically disturbing year. And they're doing this in an effort to make divisions within the NATO alliance, 
all these sort of things break apart because it's going to be distressing to watch. And there will be very vocal calls to finish this war no matter what. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now... I have a few thoughts about the war from the perspective of someone who had their political awakening opposing the Iraq war. I imagine that a lot of the left right now is probably feeling a bit of cognitive dissonance in reaction to the war in Ukraine. We've been so opposed to so many military actions for so many years that it is very uncomfortable to find ourselves on the side of helping to perpetuate a war. When we approach this topic, producer Aaron, who did the research for the show today, and I talked through what it was we were looking for and what she was coming across in her initial research. And I really wanted to understand the anti-war, the anti-intervention left perspective from people like Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, who was Medea Benjamin from Code Pink 20 years ago during the Iraq War, and I heard from her a lot, in addition to the left perspective on continuing to support Ukraine with money and weapons to help perpetuate the war. You heard some of that debate right at the top of the show today, but if I had to summarize what we heard, including what was in the show, but also a bunch of stuff that didn't make the cut, this is what I would say. The anti-intervention left, represented today by Medea Benjamin, who are prioritizing negotiating for peace, they are big on the context of the war looking backward, while the pro-support of Ukraine left is big on the context of the war looking forward. Now, as longtime listeners know, I am a huge fan of context. It's basically my favorite thing. Uh, and in fact, I encourage anyone to go back and check out the first episode we posted about the invasion on March 4th of last year. It's number 1474, entitled Invasion of Ukraine, colon, Some Context. The historical context of the war is super important to understand. But now, a year later... I'm really disappointed that the messaging of the anti-intervention left is still almost exclusively looking backward to the point where it's beginning to sound like whataboutism. Arguments about what we should do going forward often turn back to the role of NATO in provoking Russia or the stance of the U.S. on peace negotiations. And I can't help but think, yeah, I know, but why are your arguments better for the future? Not how well can you criticize the U.S. or NATO or the West in general. I need answers about the future. Focusing on NATO or the West or the U.S. or even just platitudes about peace being obviously better than war when arguing to negotiate a ceasefire seems to be giving historical context, which it is. But it's also obfuscating the context that we need about the future. What I never heard was any reasonable projection from the anti-intervention left, much less the right, obviously, about why the situation would likely be better 10 years from now if we were to follow their prescription for the war. 
On the other hand, those maintaining their support of Ukraine are basing their arguments almost exclusively on the context of the future impacts of this war and the dire consequences of allowing a might-makes-right strategy from Russia to prevail. Personally, I would love to hear a really solid anti-intervention argument steeped in thoughtful analysis of the likely outcomes of their proposed actions. Like I said, I'm almost reflexively anti-war. It's a reaction forged in decades of American military misadventures of choice, usually based on lies, ignorance, hubris, or all three. I would love for the most logical choice to be to oppose support for the war. I'd be much more comfortable in that position. But I need for that argument to be based on enough context for me to really sink my teeth into it. Context of both the past and the future. The anti-interventionists need to make a case that includes a positive vision of the future in the medium and long term, if those arguments are even there to be made. I don't personally know what they would be, and they may not exist, which would be a good excuse for not having been able to come up with any in the past year, but I would be open to them as soon as I heard them. Until then, I can't help but maintain a position of supporting Ukraine in their fight while always being on the lookout for diplomatic ways to convince Russia to stop the invasion. The one point from the show that I would reiterate and emphasize is the caution about replaying the wake of World War I when a defeated Germany was subjected to punitive punishment, at least in their perspective, that helped build enough national resentment to pave the way for Hitler. What we are seeing in Putin today is a similar phenomenon playing itself out in the wake of the embarrassing collapse of the Soviet Union, which is bad enough Now, no good would come from Russia coming away from this invasion with a victory, but nor would it be in anyone's long-term interest to make the Russian people feel embarrassed enough in defeat that they would turn into a worse version of themselves even more akin to pre-World War II Germany. So when it comes to negotiations, I think the world needs to be ready to not get a cathartic total victory over Russia in which they are thoroughly punished for their actions in Ukraine, though it would feel just and right in the moment and the short term, taking the context of the future into account makes for a very different calculation. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep your comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text message to 202-999-3991 or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our trans scripts together. Thanks to Amanda Huffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes. In addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, 
all through your regular podcast player. And you can continue the discussion by joining our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.